0: you're listening to the 10 podcast the discovery and design channel in health Tune in with me, your host Matt Patterson, to learn about insights from the world of healthcare today. It's great to have Dr. Asim Malhotra on the show today, a consultant cardiologist, a specialist in metabolic syndrome, and we'll go on to explain more about what that is, and a founding member of Action on Sugar, the lead campaigner highlighting the harm that excess sugar consumption is doing in the UK. Thank you, Asim, for coming on today. Uh, We've got Dr. Asim Malhotra coming on to talk to us about how he's blazing a trail for rethinking different ways of tackling the COVID-19 crisis that we have in front of us. Uh, Asim, thank you very much for coming on the podcast this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Tell us a bit about yourself and how we've got to here and this blazing trail I'm talking about.
1: Yes, yeah, so a bit by my background, I'm a, a cardiologist, NHS consultant, cardiologist, had, um, almost 20 years ago, 2001, medical school. And then uh, what I noticed over the years, having graduated and working as a practicing doctor in the NHS was more and more strain on the system. And uh, it was actually 2004 that, I, that the World Health Organization announced that there was a public health crisis with obesity. And I'd realized that these diet related diseases, obesity in particular, had been affecting our healthcare system, probably is the major public health crisis of our time, certainly before COVID 19 came along. And uh, I then uh, started a campaign, if you like, um, over the last, probably since around 2010, um, to try and tackle the root cause of this problem, which ultimately is the food environment. So we have an oversupply of of cheap ultra processed foods. Now what's interesting, and, and we'll talk about, you know, what needs to be done to tackle that, but what's interesting with COVID-19 is unfortunately people with conditions related to excess body fat, including obesity, seem to be more vulnerable to risk of death. Uh, in some cases up to tenfold higher risk of death if you have, a con- you have type two diabetes and other conditions associated such as um, with obesity such as high blood pressure and heart disease. So it it seems to be exploiting already what was, um, you know, I would describe, and I said on Sky News a few weeks ago, the dire general health of the British population, which unfortunately more than 60% of adults are now overweight or obese in this country. So actually what needs to be done is we need to really implement policy changes um, which have been described and advocated for by various organizations that I've worked with, including the medical Royal colleges and the British Medical Association to uh, curb diet related disease by reducing our consumption of ultra processed foods. Now with COVID-19, I think the additional thing to add, And this is something that I have, you know, practiced my patients and have researched, et cetera, is that you can reverse many of these metabolic risk factors within a few weeks of changing diet. Now, this isn't part of the conventional mainstream discussion, but the evidence is very clear. That's what I see with many of my patients. So I think we need to really tell people to change their diet right now um, and reduce and mitigate the risks of of complications from COVID-19.
0: So there's this, um, so the general route is going down this vaccine treatments, tracing, quarantine piece, but we're talking here about metabolic disease and about obesity and about things that are going on in the bodies of every individual of in the country, and what they can do to help themselves specifically in relation to that. For, for those of our audience who don't really understand uh, probably who potentially hope to understand some of about some of obesity but probably not a lot about metabolic disease could you just tell us a little bit about what metabolic disease is and how it manifests itself in the body and those kind of things
1: yeah so i think the the best way to explain it uh, as i do with my patients is uh, metabolic syndrome is responsible for about two-thirds of people having heart attacks and that's rooted in a uh, a biological phenomenon called insulin resistance, but really for the layperson, that is uh, essentially most importantly related to excess body fat. But obviously, can all can be influenced by things like stress, poor sleep, and being sedentary. But diet seems to be the biggest factor that drives chronic metabolic disease. And metabolic syndrome is any three of the following five: so it's having a high blood pressure, having pre-diabetes or type two diabetes, having an increased waist circumference and having a cholesterol profile, which is characterized by high blood triglycerides, a fat in the bloodstream, and low HDL, known as a good cholesterol. And if you have any three of those five, if you have metabolic syndrome, and your highest risks, not just for heart attack, but it's associated with many other conditions, including stroke, cancer, dementia, for example. So this is the big sort of elephant in the room issue that we need to tackle. Now, the good news is, of course, you know, conventional medicine tackles uh, these various risk factors with drugs predominantly. But what people aren't being told enough of and what isn't getting enough of, a, um, you know, enough of a, a, a awareness is the fact that you can actually tackle all of these conditions from lifestyle changes with diet being the most important.
0: So you've got very clear examples of people we see on the TVs every night. We've got Matt Hancock, who looks relatively thin, Boris Johnson, who's a bit bigger. Matt Hancock gets a disease that affects him in terms of COVID nineteen. He bounces back pretty quickly. Boris Johnson unfortunately goes into hospital and almost goes goes into a ICU and almost goes onto a ventilator. Is there any correlation potentially with this thinking in, in the reason behind why that happened? Yeah. So with obesity,
1: um, so we have data from f- we have flu data, which you know, and flu is obviously in some ways similar to COVID nineteen, of course. It it appears that COVID-19 is certainly several-fold more lethal in terms of mortality than the flu uh, and more contagious as it's a novel virus. But um, people with obesity uh, independently appear to have greater risk um, of complications from flu and uh, tend to carry the virus for longer. And the reasons for this are probably because of the fact that the excess body fat is Um, you know, results in what we call a dysregulated immune system. So immune system doesn't function as well as it should do, but also can cause an exaggerated immune response to viruses. So that what happens when people die, uh, a tragic minority of people die from COVID-19 is they die from something called the acute respiratory distress syndrome. In other words, the lungs get attacked by your immune system and they shut down. And the obesity seems to be a risk factor for that happening.
0: I think of this and I think of other things I've heard stories about on the podcast and people we've been talking to and maybe it's a public health England message in a way you hear that companies like Krispy Kreme are donating donuts to hospitals for their staff to consume to keep them going during these times of added stress probably poor diet probably poor working conditions what are your thoughts about that in relation to clearly uh, the opposite as to what you're trying to achieve or what's trying to be achieved to have people who clinicians who are working in the healthcare system healthy in the first place yeah so
1: um to be honest the crispy crispy cream um, donation was in my view a deliberate uh you know marketing stunt to enhance their brand and interestingly it comes straight out of the dirty tricks playbook of big tobacco and the reason i say that is in the 30s and 40s, when there were increasing public concerns about the links between smoking and adverse health consequences, and you've got to remember, in those days, more than half of the adult population were smokers. As part of their PR campaign, Big Tobacco um, ensured that well, doctors were basically advertising, promoting and endorsing cigarettes. And that enhanced the legitimacy of those products. And actually, we know that with junk food in hospitals, very good data showing that um, the association of junk food in hospitals or the sale of them in hospitals does legitimize the acceptability of these products. And therefore, people don't think they are, they're as harmful um, as, 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 you know, as they are. And uh, people may respond and say, well, hold on a minute. You know, there's nothing wrong with having a donut. Of course, there isn't nothing, nothing wrong with having a donut. There's also nothing wrong with having a cigarette. You know, a c- one cigarette isn't going to kill you but associating it with hospitals and the fact, you know, when we've got an obesity epidemic, which also, by the way, is very highly prevalent, unfortunately, in, amongst medical staff. So um, 50% of NHS employees are overweight or obese. One in four nurses are obese. And that just reflects um, the fact that the, you know, hospital food environment as well is very unhealthy. 75% of foods purchased in hospitals are unhealthy as well. So this is really uh, what's behind all of this. And unfortunately, a lot of people aren't aware that the you know certainly the NHS is being exploited for this purpose purely from a perspective of 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 Krispy Kreme trying to enhance their brand. There's no in my view. I'm sorry, I don't think there's any uh, compassion or generosity from this from this company. They are they are profit-making businesses. That's what they're there to do, and they're exploiting the situation at the moment.
0: I was listening to a podcast with Mark Kyman and something that stuck to me about the reference in the US about nutrition conferences, let's call them that, being sponsored by things like craft, being layered around uh, a practice and a promotional piece around those people who should be giving the best evidence to people in the States. So it seems that this kind of stuff is, is, is incredibly embedded into our society.
1: It is, yeah. Um, you know, and what the best thing, one of the best quotes I... I've heard and I wrote about um, in, in The Guardian a few years ago was when I had a discussion with the former editor of uh, New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of the highest, in fact, the highest medical journal uh, in terms of impact factor in the world, Marcia Angel. And she said to me, the real battle we have in healthcare is one of truth versus money. So really what we do, what we have is an epidemic of misinformed doctors, misinformed patients, misinformed public Um, And part of the challenge to why we've not overcome this problem, Matt, is because most people are not aware of these system failures. They think the advice they're getting, for example, from NHS in terms of the Eat Well Guide and what you should be eating, healthy eating, is independent. It's not independent. It's unfortunately influenced by industry, the very industries that profit from selling you the foods that contribute to your real health in the first place. So this system failure really is at the root of the problem and needs to be changed. And the way we change it is by shining a light on it. Um, You know, sunlight is a very potent disinfectant because, you know, I believe in informed choice. I believe in true, real democracy. Uh, And I'm pretty sure, Matt, certainly when I speak to my patients, they're horrified when I tell them all these sorts of things. They weren't aware of it. And no one in their right mind and certainly no one I've spoken to would find this acceptable.
0: It got me looking back over my design career and I thought, well, where have I been working on these things in the past? And I'd forgotten about some of the examples of the jobs that we did when I first started off in design after I'd moved from being a physical therapist a long time ago. And we worked for a big major drinks manufacturer. And we were looking at how you design vaults and chillers to optimise the selection process of people picking the right drinks at the right time. And we flew groups of us, designers, anthropologists, human factors specialists around the world, China, uh, Europe, Latin America uh, and beyond to look at the behavioural personas and profiles of how people approach chillers. So it was designed with lighting and auditory and sound and positioning and ergonomics and industrial design to, to effectively make you make the right choice. Like millions of pounds are spent on ensuring that you pick things like sodas out of fridges. And that was 16 years ago. How... With the, such a weight of power behind these industries promoting these foods, and this is not even talking about advertising and messaging and all that kind of stuff that we see on television that's flooded across our eyes week in, week out, day in, day out. What might government do? Because it feels like at the moment with this, this pandemic that we have an opportunity and a real factor that's brought forward potentially diseases that kill us in tens of years to things that kill us in tens of days. What should the government do to help?
1: Yeah, uh, Matt, so I think what's important really is, uh, you know, we can learn from the, um, you know, learn from history with what we did with big tobacco. So it did take several decades before, before the first links between smoking and lung cancer were published and, and us having effective regulation. It was only regulation, ultimately, that, drowned, that drove down consumption of, of cigarettes. And that happened through what we say in public health as, as targeting the three A's, the availability, the affordability and the acceptability of these um, products, cigarettes, for example. So taxing cigarettes, uh, public smoking bans and public education campaigns, including dissociation of, for example, tobacco with sporting events, et cetera. And once that happened, there were, that was actually what was responsible more than anything else for reducing you know, the cigarette consumption, which is what, 50 to 60% of the population smoking to less than 20% now that's where the impact was. So government can, you know, we have lessons, we, we have history on our side in terms of, of learning from there. And if you apply that, you know, what I would say the low hanging fruit at the moment is ultra processed foods, which is more than half of the British diet, you know, basically packaged food, which is not very, you know, doesn't have much in terms of nutritional value is high in sugar, starch and unhealthy oils, additives, preservatives. You know, this is what dominates the British diet now. So if we were to massively reduce that consumption, say get it from 50% to less than 10%, you would see quite significant dramatic changes in population health uh, within a very short space of time, within months to a year or two, um, in terms of reducing the prevalence of obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, and probably cancer and dementia too. So I think um, this is what needs to be done. And in fact, failure failure to act isn't really an option, um, Matt, because you know we've seen that what our poor health has done in terms of really driving the economy to a standstill and you know i think a very basic simple concept i think most people within business would understand is that you know an unhealthy population is is also an economically un- you know unproductive one so it's in our own interest, even for businesses, to ensure that their staff and the population are healthy.
0: Just to clarify from my perspective on that, so if we're obese or we're diabetic or we've got visceral fat, etc., is it too late for us or can we turn these things around? And, and what does turning it around look like? Yeah, so uh,
1: no, it isn't too late. I, many of my patients send their type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome into remission uh, within just a few weeks of changing diet. And, and more specifically, what I advocate for really is a um, a Mediterranean-inspired diet, but without the sugar and the starch, um, because the sugar and the starch seems to be, for a lot of these people, the big driver of overconsumption and excess body fat. So when people cut out sugar and ultra-processed foods and just eat real food and don't have to count calories, of course there are different approaches, but this is one very effective one, then um, they can send their you know, these conditions into remission or certainly reduce the need, of med- need for medications quite significantly, which patients are very happy about because less medications, less side effects, and they feel their quality of life improves. And if when their quality of life improves, that does encourage better adherence. But what I would say, certainly this is very effective for individuals, but what I would say is that for sustainability of it, we do really need to sort the food environment out as well. This can't be just left to individual choice because your chances of, of relapsing are higher if uh, you're having to constantly battle with, uh, you know, with ultra-processed food wherever you go on a daily basis,
0: I saw you wrote a book. Is it the POP diet? POP diet. Yes. Yes. How, yes. How does that stack up? So some of our audience might be saying, well, it's been really bad in Italy in terms of Lombardy with the deaths, etc. How do those two things come together with the POP diet and the fact that Italy has had quite a lot of suffering in terms of COVID-19?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, there's been nothing in Pioppi in terms of any deaths, as far as I'm aware of. Pioppi is a, a village in southern Italy, which has one of the highest long, you know, areas of longevity in the world. But in particular, people age well, they age healthily, don't have chronic conditions. Italy, data from Italy, um, and I'll explain why this is in a second, revealed that about the, av- the average age of death was an older population, about 81. Uh, and on average, uh, those people that died had 2.7 comorbidities, what we've talked about already in you know, the blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, cancer, for example, smoking. Um, so they did have uh, age-related and lifestyle-related diseases. Unfortunately, the traditional Mediterranean diet, and it varies in different parts of Italy, has been, of, has been overtaken by Western food. So Italy, interestingly, people may be surprised to hear this. Spain and Greece, these Mediterranean countries, have big, big problems with obesity now, especially in children, because of things like sugary drinks and Westernized food. So the traditional Mediterranean diet has been replaced, unfortunately, with, um, with ultra-processed food as well in these countries.
0: I, I know we've had a time of reflection over this period when we've had lockdown, where people have worked different hours, not commuted, probably not eaten. If I speak for myself, I've eaten at a relatively early time. I'm eating at 5.30 every day rather than 8.30 at 9 o'clock. I'm probably changing the calories I'm going in. I'm doing more exercise. I'm eating better. Uh, I'm certainly trying on a one-man mission to go on this journey myself and to take, uh, make my metabolic health better. And it's certainly, I'm finding it much easier at the present time than where if I were traveling around the States, doing research work, going in and out of all of the very uh, poorly stocked environments for the foodstuffs we've been talking about. What can we do as a society in relation to helping along the way uh, to, to enable us to have a better diet? What, what, could, what else could government do in relation to this to maybe change how we gain access to these foods? Because I know we're surrounded by Starbucks, McDonald's, etc.
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. I think uh, on, a, on a basic level, what we need to do is make these sorts of junk ultra processed foods more expensive and simultaneously make healthy foods cheaper. I think that would definitely shift the balance in the right direction. I think also needs to be combined combined with some food education, of course, uh, especially in schools. I think better labeling uh, with very weak regulations on what constitutes as healthy. You know, for example, many people aren't aware that some of the things that you buy in Starbucks, for example, can be loaded with 25 or 30 teaspoons of sugar. Um, you know, there's a lack of awareness there um, because it's not made, you know, apparent. So I think there's quite a lot of things that people, that, that government could be doing. But essentially, the regulations are quite weak. So it needs to be a dedicated public health campaign, really, to highlight to people the harms of sugar, the harms of ultra processed food, and also enable people to understand what ultra processed food is. And if that was to happen, the food industry also then would would have to change. And I think, you know, even simultaneously, um, the food industry, if they were able to shift Um, the supply of their products from ultra-processed to minimally processed foods I think that would have a big impact as well.
0: Do you think the fact that we're going to be able to import less potentially with changing in supply chain and those things will this make it better or worse do you think in the short run in terms of food production?
1: You know, I don't really know the answer to that question, Matt, to be honest. Um, you know, it depends where we're importing from. If we're going to be importing a lot more food from America, then I am concerned because I think they have bigger issues uh, with, with uh, their food supply in terms of unhe- unhealthy foods, especially with unhealthy, you know, with, with uh, sort of hormone injected meat, um, for example. So, um, you know, I, it really depends where, we're, you know, how the food supply is changing
0: and is there any is there any particular research that you think of that you're doing or that's going on in relation to this space at the moment in relation to the covid19 death rates of who is dying or who is not dying with certain levels of visceral fat etc cetera, etc cetera. is that will that data ever be available in terms of weight obesity and illness and death rates or is that is that hard to find
1: um at the moment there isn't you know public health england are supposed to be looking into the link between obesity and adverse health outcomes um i have actually been asked by matt hancock to submit more data on what they should be looking into which i will be doing in the next week or so Uh, but yes, metabolic syndrome, I think needs to be looked at these metabolic risk factors. I do not think they're being measured properly. And certainly what would be useful is to get any kind of reliable information on the kind of diets of people who were admitted and got sick with COVID-19. Although I suspect, you know, it's going to be, it might be difficult to tease it all out because a lot of the diet is ultra processed anyway. So, um, we do need more information from that perspective, but even regardless of that, I think that the evidence is very clear. Now, anyway, Matt, that the, those comorbidities are associated with much significantly increased risk of death, and therefore to protect our health care system moving forward, anyway, this is this is the priority really. Um, because if you remember, the main reason that we, you know, had the lockdown institute in the UK was to protect the NHS from being overwhelmed. But if the NHS is functioning, um, you know, well without you know, with having slack in the system, which will only happen if we get a healthier population then we may not need a lockdown if and when the next viral pandemic happens.
0: I wonder if we have, there's no guarantee of a vaccine, there's no guarantee of anything coming soon, so we may have to consider the worst case scenario, which is an endemic COVID-19, or moving forward. If we were speaking in a year's time, and we'd made some of these healthcare changes, and we'd moved towards better diet, what, what, we, what might we be seeing? What, might, what, what sort of impact may that have had?
1: Um, Matt, I mean, we look at South Korea, for example, you know, they had seemed to have better uh, lockdown policies, but it's also interesting to note that they you know, they have very high longevity, they have very little, one of the lowest obesity rates in the world, and they weren't adversely affected at all by COVID-19. So we could have a similar model to, to south korea potentially
0: and i think we'd all be very grateful of something like that looking forward as we hope for all these other factors to be managed and sorted out for us as well i ask all my guests a final question which is if i had a magic wand and i could give you anything to help us through this this covid 19 process what would that be in relation to your specific knowledge and, and how would it work
1: i think if i had a magic wand um i would make the healthy nutritious food available and affordable to every single person in this country and i would tell them that if they followed this uh dietary pattern for four weeks they would see dramatic improvements in their health
0: so the four-week challenge so to speak i mean there's a design challenge put out there by some advertising communications company who could be able to say well let's do the four-week challenge and see where we start and see how healthy we are at the end of it absolutely thank you so so much for coming on the show today it's been super interesting and it's an area i think the the as you said, shining a light on, uh, there's so much can be learned by everyone in our society to, to look at where they fit in relation to this and what they individually can do about it.
1: Brilliant. Absolutely. Thank you, Matt.
0: And Asim, if people want to find you on social media and find out more about you and your work, where should they look and where should they connect with you?
1: Lovely. I think the web, my website will probably be the easiest and you know, Twitter handle and website. So my website is drasim.com
0: as in so Dr.
1: D-O-C-T-O-R. Yeah, D-O-C t-o-r as in dr asim one okay and my twitter is just at dr asim dr
0: asim have a good day
1: cheers bye-bye
0: thanks that was dr asim malhotra who came on the show to talk to us about obesity diet and the impact this can have to every single one of us in the uk and if you'd like to know more about uh, asim's work uh, i'd advise you also to have a look at his book the piopi diet a 21 day plan to lose weight and live longer happier and healthier written before this covid19 crisis came came to town Um, Thank you for followers and for being a listener today. Uh, Please do subscribe to follow us on the podcast. Uh, Leave a a comment. Tell us us what you think about Asim's work and about the conversation we had today. I'd love to hear from you all. Uh, And stay safe, uh, eat well, and until we uh, see you again on the podcast, thinking about you all at these challenging times. Until next time, goodbye.